coming up on the Write Something Worthy podcast. I released two books simultaneously to the world, The Nimble C-Suite and The Nimble Company. Two books at the same time. Why in the world would anybody ever do that? Why? <laughs> it's, it's hard, hard enough, enough to, to do one. one. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the Worthy Writer edition of the Write Something Worthy podcast. Each month, we bring you an informative interview that helps you to live your best life as an entrepreneur. And now, your host, Tanya Brockett. Greetings, Worthy Tribe. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to bring back to the Write Something Worthy podcast, Mark S.A. Smith. We had Mark on the show last year, and he shared with us some great tips for publishing our book and sharing his experiences with his own publishing journey. And now, after a successful career in helping to bring to market billions of dollars of disruptive technology, Mark S.A. Smith now works with vision makers to turn market challengers into market leaders. He worked with C-suite leaders determined to transform their business from a market challenger into the market leader in three years or less. So this is exemplified in his two new books, The Nimble C-Suite, How to Align the Diverse Strengths of Your Executive Team to Predictably Deliver Extraordinary Results in a Transformational Economy, and... The Nimble Company, a proactive, socially responsible framework for driving sustained profits and growth in a chronically chaotic world. Mark has two books out right at the same time, and we're going to talk about that. Mark is the co-founder of Nimbility Works, a consulting firm dedicated to helping leaders embrace nimbility. And he brings his broad leadership perspective, extensive business models, professional speaking capacity, and tightly honed coaching skills to leaders who desire to lead transformational businesses and teams that make a difference. So join me in welcoming back to the Write Something Worthy podcast, Mark S.A. Smith. Welcome, Mark, to the Write Something Worthy podcast. I am so happy to have you back with us again today. Thank you, Tanya. I'm so delighted to be here. We must, as authors, write something worthy because we have to change the world based on what we're inspired to share. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for agreeing with me on that one. Um, And, you know, I have to ask, you've got new things to share. Now, this is wonderful. You were one of the early guests in the Write Something Worthy podcast. It has been over a year, and I, I just want to first share my appreciation for your willingness to come, you know, early in on our podcast and then to come back. I'm so grateful to have oh, you're, you. You're so welcome. I'll come back anytime you invite me. I'm sure I've got something new every time. I know. That's what's also great. So, you know, why don't you tell us what is new? What is going on in your book world right now? Well, I did something very insane in September. I released two books simultaneously to the world, The Nimble C-Suite and The Nimble Company. Two books at the same time. Why in the world would anybody ever do that? <laughs> Why? It's, it's hard, hard enough, enough to, to do, do one. 
Yes. <laughs> well, maybe I'll give you a quick thumbnail sketch. In July of 2021, my co-author, who I have been dying to write a book with ever since I met the man, Dr. David Gruder, an outstanding human being, author of many, many books in the world of integrity and uh, mental performance for executives. I invited him to, to write a book with me because I wanted to get his psychological perspective on the content that I was delivering. And my promise to him is that I would do the heavy lifting and I would fund the book. All he had to do is show up and contribute his insights. And so we convened in a condo in Bryan Head, Utah, just an absolutely beautiful high-altitude ski area. And we sat down and we storyboarded out the book. Originally, it was designed to be called the Nimble C-Suite. And over a period of three days, we had a wall full of sticky notes and had the entire outline designed. Then we went off and and did essentially a walkabout for two days in the amazing parts of Utah where we essentially discussed philosophy, came back, and then tweaked up the outline based on those two days of just being freeform. We're not working on the book. We're just sharing ideas. And the end result is that we ended up with so much content that we decided we needed to split it into two books. And so we split the book into the Nimble C Suite, which is designed for executives, and it's more of a strategic handbook on how do you write, match the temperament, the worldview, the lens that people use into specific roles to be as nimble as possible. And then we uh, split out the other portion into the nimble company, which is more tactical and designed uh, not only for executives, but also for managers, because it's more of a how-to manual in terms of how do you manage uh, execution risk, which is all those things that tend to disrupt an organization. So we wrote a highly comprehensive book on how do you manage execution risk, those things that are foreseeable and preventable, how do you take care of those, how do you handle the unforeseeable and surprise execution risks. And so the two together create a blueprint for how to operate a company that is uh, capable of handling upheavals and chaos, uh, both from a design standpoint as well as a culture standpoint and tool set standpoint. That's what the two books ended up being. So we split them in two because it would have been just too massive of a book on its own. And I'm really glad that we did. It ends up that the Nimble Company which is the tactical version, is outselling the Nimble C-Suite, which is the strategic version. Now, that doesn't surprise me in retrospect because there are many more managers out there than there are the C-Suite executives, the CEO, CFO, CIO, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we got some market insight by splitting the books this way that we wouldn't have gotten any other way. But since they're companions, it was easy for us to promote them simultaneously. And the covers have the same design. It looks like they go together. And we're able to talk about them as a set and then dive into whatever issue is on the mind of whoever we're speaking with and give them prescriptive uh, diagnostic and prescriptive insights from whichever book is most appropriate. There is so much in there. 
um, <laughs> that I want to talk about. One, sure. Before, before just uh, getting into the book, I want to look at that concept of your reaching out to develop a partnership model with an author. Now, I am used to hearing people say, oh, I co-authored a book with so-and-so, and or they have like a bunch of people in a chapter book kind of concept. But to hear someone strategically approach a co-author because of that value that they know they can add to that book, I, I don't hear that often. I had a psychological model, but I don't have any degree in psychology. And so I needed Dr. Gruder's PhD in psychology to validate the model that I was putting forth. And so therefore, nobody is going to be questioning my model from a psychological standpoint because he co-authored the book with me. Plus, he added so much more depth. The book ended up being so much richer than I had initially envisioned because of the strategic decision to select him uh, to, uh, to be synergistic with my concepts. That is wonderful. And there is a couple of reasons that I like that. One, the humility that it takes for you to recognize, hey, I've got something really good here, but I'm not an expert and I could use uh, I could use somebody else to part partner with me on this. So first yeah. of all, you've got to lay your ego down, first of all, mm -hmm. so that you can mm -hmm. do that and say, hey, you know, this could be an awesome project if I had X in here. So that, yes. I think, is marvelous already. And then two, to be able to clearly identify a good resource that had alignment in your values, the concept, and so forth, so that you could have a rich and powerful partnership. That is tremendous. I, 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 there's just so many things about it that I just absolutely love. And I really appreciate you. you sharing that with me. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I've written a, a number of books with co-authors. And when the co-authors are completely aligned with the intention of the book, the book is so much better than either author can write. But there has to be full alignment in that sense. And Dr. David, he sees that these two books are essentially moving his career to a new level of playing field as it does to mine as well. And so the two of us are bootstrapping each other up to where we have a, a well-established, well-documented, well-reviewed books to assist top-level executives in companies. And so for both of us, we have a whole new set of positioning that we didn't have before. And I don't think I could have done it on my own. I, you know, I'll leave it to Dr. David to make that comment. But uh, and, and for me, it, I, needed, I needed to have this collaboration to move me up in the marketplace. And, you know, it is quite aligned with the uh, success model of, like, uh, Napoleon Hill, for example, who talked about, I believe it's Napoleon, either he or Wallace Waddle where they were talking about that third mind, that coming together as a mastermind and how 
when you work with others, that collaboration creates much more than either one of you individually could have done. And I think both of them talked about it. Napoleon certainly talked about the mastermind. It was a few chap- pages in one of his chapters, but yes, he certainly did. Okay. Wallace did too. So it's when, you know, when you're coming together to collaborate, there's so much more that can happen. And I've always felt that way. But there are a lot of industries, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of, you know, individuals that don't necessarily see that that way. They're still looking at things from a competitive standpoint. And, you know, I just believe in collaboration over competition anyway. And that's just a beautiful example of it. I just love it. Thank you. It uh, worked out way better than either one of us expected, and so for which I'm truly grateful. So the um, we um, we formed a company with two other extraordinary gentlemen called Nimbility Works, and we published it under Nimbility Works Media, which is a subsidiary of our new company. So we essentially self-published, but we created a publishing company to do so. So we have control over our ISBN numbers, and we have control over distribution. And of course, for us, since we have a company that's going to be using these books as a methodology to promote our consulting services and training services and coaching services, it was a whole lot easier and a lot more cost-effective for us to form a publishing company, especially given the fact we have 10 more books between the four of us that we're intending to publish in the next three years. So there will be an ability library that's going to be developed as we go forward. And so for us to do that within our own control, we felt was worth the effort. Since I've had decades of experiencing publishing books, not a lot of them, but uh, you know, I had an idea of what the process was like. But it was different this time. There were some interesting challenges. Now, of course, as you've probably discussed in past shows, um, one of the reasons to self-publish is because you have substantially higher margins and you can buy your books at loss versus wholesale, which is a substantial savings if what you're trying to do is send out books to people as a way of starting conversations. And um, you know, given that wholesale is 55% off your list, and the print cost is, oh, you know, probably somewhere between 25% of wholesale. There's a, a lot of, of opportunity there. And so we can afford to send books to people as a conversation starter because we have self-published. Yet, if when we self-publish, it also means that we have to publish through distribution if we're going to get our books into bookstores. And in this particular case, we... We elected to use Ingram Lightning Source or Ingram Spark, um, just depending. I've used Lightning Source for decades because that was the professional yeah. publishing arm of, of our printing and distribution arms of Ingram. Now they've made Spark a whole lot easier. The only the only real difference between Spark and Lightning Source is that you have control over the wholesale pricing with Lightning Source that you didn't have Spark. Spark sets the wholesale at 55% off of list, but there's some services with Spark that make it very helpful. So um, <clears throat> we published the book through Lightning Source, and we published the ebook through Spark. Now, if I was going to do it all over again, I would just publish them both through Spark. 
because it's a unified approach. It's substantially less expensive. You know, at the time of this recording, with Spark, it's only $50 to bring into production both the physical book and the ebook, which is a deal. It's a right. screaming deal. And, of course, through distribution, what that means is your ebook gets put into Kindle and Nook and everybody else's ebook reader um, versus if you publish through, uh, through Amazon, your, your book is just going to appear on Amazon and your e-reader will only be a Kindle. So there's limited distribution, although Amazon has the bulk of the market. Yet, for a book of this nature, I wanted library distribution too which means Baker and Taylor. They're the company that right. distributes libraries, and Baker and Taylor has a, a, a lease strategy for libraries, so libraries don't have to buy the books, they just lease the books, and, and boy, you know, that, that can certainly boost our um, distribution. If, if they're distributing to 15,000 libraries and we just get a 25% of that, that's a lot of books into the hands of libraries, and that moves a lot of copies of books. So we wanted to have that aspect because of the nature of the book. Not everybody needs to, to do that. But one of the challenges that you face is in distribution, actually publish what you want, and then the booksellers do whatever the hell they want with that information. That's why Amazon will discount a book off of list because they have 55% to play with. And that's why you'll see Kindles at half price because... You know, for Amazon, selling it at half price when they've got a 55% margin means they're selling a non-physical delivery item for 10% margin. They can do that all day long. And, of course, people will buy their Kindle because they can get books cheaper there than they can from other resources. But the challenge is that when you do a book launch, usually you do a 99-cent e-book as a way of getting people's attention and getting yourself into bestseller status for a week or so. The problem is, is that Ingram Spark only allows you to change your prices once a week on Fridays. Hmm. And then there's a lag between when that new price is pushed out to the distributors on Fridays and when it shows up on, on their list. <laughs> hmm. So what that meant is that we, we had our book launch. We didn't understand this. We didn't understand the lag. And so we were doing a 99-cent launch, but there was, it, was, it was a it, at full price. $19.99 was what, 90, was what we set our ebook price at. And so we're out here just selling, telling people we have a 99-cent book, and it's not 99 cents on Amazon. So we had to do some hustling and rearranging of our promotion until Amazon caught up and had 99-cent Kindles available. Now, the way we can change this in the future is, is essentially dual distribution. Use Ingram Spark to get the e-book the e and the physical book into the hands of all of the organizations and then do a non-exclusive with with uh, Amazon, because then we can go into Author Central and we can play with the prices, and Amazon responds to those almost instantly. Or you just realize that's what Amazon does and recognize there's going to be some delays in the process. So that was something that was a complete surprise to us and a bit discerning or discon disconcerting at the beginning. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just something that we learned along the way, but it's important to understand the philosophy was broadest distribution possible and capacity to purchase at wholesale. Those were our two key points because the nature, because the purpose of the book is to get introduction conversations with people that we can serve. I have heard a lot of great things about using Spark for for doing the ebooks now. A lot of people would do Ingram Spark, and some of them would do Spark and Draft to Digital together rather than Spark and Amazon. Because through Draft to Digital, if you are not already on Amazon, you can also tap into Amazon. And then with Draft to Digital, you have the iBook, and then you have the international ebook distribution, and uh, you know the yeah. Kobo and uh, Rakuten, and all that kind of good stuff. Oftentimes, you will find people using two different companies to heal that distribution wound that might exist when you're working with your books. Yeah, it's, and it's so, such an important thing to think about because there's a process. It takes time. It's not something you can do in a day. Mm-hmm. There's a Good runway trail. involved, and, and uh, you know there's a vetting process. Ingram Ingram will put your product through just to make sure it's technically correct, and that can take a week or two. Right, and that's one of the issues mm-hmm. my client is having now is the technical issue. Um, I have yeah. never had any issues uploading anything I've ever done for my client, either on Amazon or elsewhere. But they do happen. Those glitches happen. Those issues happen. But that's because, you know, we design great documents so that, you know, there's one uh, launcher that I partner with who loves getting projects from us because they never have any issues uploading. And yeah. uh so that's a real benefit. But you're right. That one way that you have to plan for, you can't just say, oh, okay, launch day is this day, so I'm going to have the book ready by then. No, no, no. You've got, to, no. <laughs> you've got to get some things in place ahead of time. That puppy has to be up and approved and category selected and all of that good stuff. And you can't get yes. additional categories on Amazon until it's already live. So That's right. That that means that it's got to be there before you can get those additional, and it has to go live before you can get those additional categories added. Yes. So, so yeah. you know, one of the ways to handle that, of course, is give yourself plenty of time, two months, six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, it also helps to work with somebody who knows what the heck that they've been through and then have a... Um, a uh, for sale date that's different than the availability date so that you can, you know, you have a, a month or two months to do pre-sales that won't be shipped until your your release date. And so you can, you know, our book was on Amazon for two months prior to it being able to be purchased. You could buy it, people could buy it, but they wouldn't get it until the release date. So that can also help some with getting the categories and things like that, where you do those yes. calendar split. But you, you need to get some guidance, uh, listener. you got to get some guidance on this stuff because it's complex and it's not usually highly obvious. And you, know, you can tap into those who've paid the stupid tax and made all the mistakes <laughs> and, and keep from making those That's themselves. Right. And, then, and then for the, the third edition, the Audible edition, the audio book edition, ah, we use... I would- just about to ask you about that. What oh, are you yeah. doing about that? 
Well, the interesting thing is your audiobook may make you more profit than anything else that you do because it's a higher price than the ebook and you get to keep a substantial substantially higher piece of that. Now you can go you can go to Audible and publish through them. But if you if you want uh, to keep the most possible, Audible's going to want an exclusive. But there's you know, there's 52 other audiobook distributors out there on the planet. And do you really want to cut all of them off? And do you not want to, you know, would you like to be able to make your audiobook available to people as a sample or as an introduction or as a marketing tool? And in those cases, Audible's not going to really do a good job allowing you to do that. So we ended up using Authors Republic as our publisher for our audiobook. And uh, we recorded the, the book ourselves because I have a, a deep experience in audio engineering. And so I was able to, using professional microphones and professional recording strategies, uh, create a, a book that was completely acceptable for um, Audible. It's not something I would recommend to anybody. Don't record your own book. Go into a studio. Uh, no, wow. don't do that. Don't do that. Now, go into a studio. That's okay for you to, to do the process, but you also need to have a producer. Self-producing your audiobook is not a smart thing. Now, in our particular case, both Dr. David and I read the book, and we were able to co-produce. So he was sitting there with the copy, listening to every word I said and making sure that I said it correctly and vice versa. You have to have that level of producer. Otherwise, you'll go back to the editing process and you miss said things. It just happens. It's a slightly arduous process. We limited ourselves to three hours of reading a day each. You can't keep your voice and you can't keep your focus for that length of time, especially if you're delivering with some kind of interpretation, something that uh, is delivering in your voice tonality and energy and other elements, what you would like. I love books that are well-produced, read by the author, because it gives me a different insight, because the author emphasizes certain words that I may not have emphasized when I was reading the book. So there's, right. there's good reasons to do it, but you know, don't, don't read your book if, you're, if you don't have a good speaking voice or you don't understand the concept behind interpretation and those elements. So that process actually worked well. We, we spent three days and set up a studio, and, and it ended up working out quite well. But, you know, the, the other thing to keep in mind is that the audiobook people require a certain technical uh, elements to the audio files that you send. And if you don't get them right, mm -hmm. they'll bounce them back. They need to have yeah. a certain noise floor, and they need to have a certain uh, volume level, and those require professional tools. Fortunately, I have those professional tools, but most people don't. They wouldn't know how to do it, and they wouldn't know how to make the edits and all those things. So we were able to do that on our own. But otherwise, you're, you're going to need to, to budget and have your hand held with the audiobook. But that said, the audiobook is today a critical part of what you publish. And you're foregoing a massive amount of exposure and readership or listenership if you don't have that audio book available. Um, and we have a number of, of, of people said, you know, let me know when the audio book's available because I don't read books. That's not how I consume content anymore. 
So, and even if you don't, right? I mean, you as an author may not prefer even to have it on a Kindle, but your reader might. And so you have to be where your reader wants you to be. That's right. right. And absolutely true. And if you don't have both the physical e and audio book available, you're missing out on a portion of your market and a portion of your readership and a portion of your expansion of your business. They all three have to be there, and all three require a different tactical as well as strategic approach to the production of, of it. And one of the things that we learned in this process, because this is the first time that I've published an audio book, all the books I've done in the past, it was pre-audible, is our, our process that we will do in the future is the completion of the manuscript, um, generation of the ebook, and then reading the ebook version into Audible because that way we get the sync, the syncing between the Kindle and the Audible. And there's things that you might have in your physical book to make it more uh, helpful, such as page number references to things before or after what you're referring to. You can't do that in an audio book, and you can't do that in an ebook because there are no page numbers. And then from that audiobook reading, you're going to spot typos that you thought you got rid of. Our book had been through a heavy editing process, and we still discovered about 25 typos in each of the books that you don't discover unless you're reading it with full intention, listened to by a producer. And so then we would take the corrections back to the physical book and the ebook so that we had the, the cleanest book possible. And so that's the production process that we're certainly going to use going forward in the future. I'd, I'd certainly love to hear your perspective on, on process creating the three different versions. I, I really appreciate you bringing up the point about the whole whisper sync and the alignment between the audio book and the ebook. And that does open a door that other authors aren't familiar with. My very first book way back in like 2007, 2007 was my loan solution book. I created an audio book for that in the studio. But back at that time, you know what audio books were? They were burned on CD. That's right. Okay. It was pre-MP3. I mean, it was before all of that. And um, But at that time, I don't even believe we had an e-book version of that beyond the PDF of the print book, to be honest. Yeah. So I read, I actually read my print book knowing that I couldn't reference certain things. And we went through and identified because my book was also had tables and spreadsheets and things like that in it, right? So I had to plan to address those things uh, in the reading of the book. So, yeah, it was it was quite different. But I have to say it was so much fun to read in a studio. You know, it was yeah. just like I had envisioned, you know, that, you know, rock stars and music. And this guy had recorded for rock stars. So it was really cool to see where the band goes when you're inside of a studio, right? And you have the little spongy walls or whatever. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But the padded right, cell. The timing. 
There was one you enjoyed being in. So, um, but you do have to be mindful of your voice. You have to be mindful of the time of day when you start those kinds of projects because you need to have that energy level consistent between chapters, you know. That's right. Or And even how much you've eaten before you recorded because a full stomach has a different resonance than an empty stomach. Mm. Oh, wow. See, there's so much to think about. Well, there is. <laughs> and who knew? And a lot of people want to read their own book because they say, well, well, it's me, and I wouldn't want somebody to be disappointed. And if I'm a speaker, then they expect to hear my voice, not somebody else's. And, you know, so that's something to consider. And that is an issue when you are on stage and, you know, they're hearing you and then they get your audio book and it's not you, right? And they're like, oh, man, I was really expecting him to read it. So that's disappointing sometimes. But, you know, it says that it's not, you know, who it's narrated by. It says who's narrating the story. So it's not like it should be a surprise. It's just sometimes it's just disappointing when it's not the author themselves. But it does take time. There, There is a standard... And unfortunately, I don't know what it is right now. I can't think of it on top of my head about the speaking hours per, um, you know, page count or whatever, how long you can expect well, a certain yeah, page count book to be. I use the number 120 words per minute as my gauge when I'm estimating studio time. So I just do a word count and then divide by 120. That's how many expected recording minutes I'm going to have. And, of course, you don't do a perfect job. You'll, your mouth will cramp up and you'll say things. And So I expect somewhere between 20 and 25% um, overrun of that just to do retakes. Now, a pro, you know, go, go onto YouTube and watch pros give you examples of their readings. And, you know, they have a lot of retakes because they don't like how they delivered that line. And so editing is, you know, having a solid editor is such an important part of that. And if, and really? Audible, Audible wants you to make sure that you have all lip smacks uh, removed so there's not that before you start talking. And you either have to have an engineer that knows how to rip that out automatically or somebody to go in there and cut it out. You also want to have an editor that keeps the pace um, in, a, in a consistent cadence. So there's a lot of elements there to consider. So that's why you really need somebody who, well, first of all, has recorded audiobooks and has edited audiobooks. You need to have that combination. Then the second thing is you need to have a producer that is focusing solely on your uh, performance and has experience in coaching performance. I'm, I'm certain that's something you can do, something I can do, although I have no desire to do that outside of my own books. <laughs> right. But it has to be right. done. Otherwise, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Sometimes people went to say, well, it's good enough. But when it comes to whisper sync, it may not be good enough. And, you know, you don't want to 
sound, you don't want to go in with substandard quality. Something I learned 30 years ago was given to me by a audiobook producer, a, a spoken word producer. And she said, you will get better, but your recordings won't. <laughs> yes. So you better make sure that the recording you produce is as the best it possibly can be, and that's what I do. We're going to have another show soon, actually, on audiobooks. And I have a an audiobook producer, a company that I just adore. And they do such tremendous voice work to go with the editing and production and everything else is just tremendous. I mean, they will be different characters in the book in order to read, you know, the inserts, you know, those call outs versus, you know, other aspects of the book. And it's just beautiful yeah. what they do. Absolutely so. true. I worked with a voice talent for, for uh, one of my friends' book. I helped him shepherd his book. And this voice talent could do any voice that you wanted. And he ended up using four different voices in the audio book version. And it really, it turned it into a performance, not just reading the book. And so much more interesting. Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to doing much more work with uh, Squeaky Cheese Productions. That's uh, who I'll be working (laughs) with on an upcoming episode. Producing audiobooks is an art and a science, and you've got to have them both nailed if you're going to have an audiobook that's going to to be a success. So how is it that you determine the price for your audiobook? You said before that it costs, you can charge more for the audiobook. You can charge more for the audiobook than you can for the ebook, and you can charge more for mm-hmm. the physical book than you can for either of those two. How did you all go about? Your book is is a little higher than most, um, you know, typical yeah, trade books. The thirty five dollars, the thirty five dollars each. Well, the reason why we did that is because we were looking at projected printing costs increasing because of inflation, and. If we priced the book at 24 or 29, there just wasn't a lot of margin left because of the cost of, of book printing and shipping. Um, those two things impact greatly how much margin you make on a book. And so we chose a price point that gave us the margin that we wanted, knowing that as an executive book, executives are willing to pay more than for a trade paperback or something like that. So our prices we did we did put as high as we thought our audience could tolerate. And then once you set the book price, then the uh, the audio book kind of falls out of that. We were still within the range for the length of, of time and the pricing. And then we we priced the the Kindle at, at a similar type of ratio. You know, I would rather send somebody a $70 worth of books retail from, that they can go to Amazon and see than send them $25 worth of books. It's a much more impressive package given the objective of the book is to get us more business. Right, and that's the thing. One of the things we had a show recently on the multiple streams of income for authors and the fact that your book is 
a way to leverage your income streams. So don't get caught up in purely the sale of that book, right? If you can right. leverage that book and what it can do for you, then you've got to look at your lifetime value of a customer or the, you know, there are other aspects that will come into play that, you know, a book sale isn't going to make a break. Every book needs to have an objective and an audience. Otherwise, the book's not going to, it's going to end up like, what was I seeing the other day? 75,000 books published a year and 55,000 never sell more than a dozen copies. Well, that's not going to work. <laughs> I've written 15 books, and all of my books have essentially broken even as far as how much effort I put into them and the the return on the book sales themselves. Yet those books in aggregate have made me millions and millions of dollars in consulting and training and custom products. And the most profitable books that I've ever written are those where my name is on the inside and I write them for, for a, a company and their name's on the outside. I'm essentially ghostwriting for companies. Their name's on the outside and I, I charge them a writing fee and then I pre-sell them 5,000 copies. That's, that came from the fact that they were able to read my books and realize that you know this guy knows how to write, he knows how to articulate and communicate. And so from a stream of in, income standpoint, I'm not adverse to, to ghosting on the right topic. In fact, I've got a meeting this afternoon with a, a gentleman that I'm going to ghost a book for him. And it's profitable enough for me to do that. I can charge him enough to, do, to make it worth my effort and uh, the amount of time required for me to take it. Fortunately, it's a topic I know, so research isn't required. I just need to sit down and articulate the key points. So there's another stream of income from an author's standpoint. Absolutely. You don't get that without proof. And it's also not always um, an author's intention, right? I mean, that is an opportunity for those who wish to take it. But there are a lot of authors sure. who are not writers, and that's why they have no. those writers, right? <laughs> so they yeah. don't want to get into that. But yeah, yeah, and, they and, certainly and, and, wouldn't mind lending their name to something, though. Sure. Certain. Well, and you know, ghost ghost writing is the right thing to do for certain people. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, for me, I like you know, since I'm a content creator, that is what I love to do, and I'm going to be doing my own content creation for as probably as long as I can imagine. I'm also fast at it. I can write extreme, extremely fast. But just because of doing it for 30 years, you tend to get fast. And what, what writer's block? There's no such thing as writer's block. I don't think <laughs> writer's block exists. There's resistance. You might have writer's resistance, but there's really no writer's block. And uh, that, that feels hard, or I don't know what to say. Well... <laughs> What you what you do is you sit down and start typing anything, blah 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 blah, until you're into the flow, and then it all flows. You write junk until the flow kicks in. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. That's one of the things that I wanted to go back to real quick. Um, you talked about working with David and 
flow charting in a sense your book, figuring out what you were going to have in the content, taking all the post-it notes or the postcards and putting them on yes. the wall kind of thing. Um, yeah. We, a yeah, lot of people like to outline that way. Yeah. Okay. Storyboarding. That's it. Yeah. So does that, do you find as a prolific author that you are, do you find that it absolutely makes sense to have all that together, knowing what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, or in the order you're going to say it, an outline before you start to writing? And doesn't that that allow writing to flow? I'm sorry. There's There's no writer's block when I know what I want to write next. And I think that exactly. uh, books books that are storyboarded just read a lot better because there's a logical flow. And when you have a wall full of sticky notes, then you can imagine what that flow is going to be like. And you go, oh, no, 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 this belongs over here. No, 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 that belongs over there. Um, ooh, looks like we've got a gap here. All right, so how are we going to fill that gap? And by the time that wall gets translated into an outline document, the book is... Well written. You're just filling in the details from that point. And that's one of the things that I talk about in my Bebop course, that I I encourage people to, I give them a couple of different ways of coming up with those topics that go into the book and so that they can see what it's going to contain, so that then writing it is just a foregone conclusion, right? It's there. That's right. So now all you have that's to do is right. fill in the spaces. So that's it. That's wonderful. And you know, and when you're feeling kind of stuck, well, then you can do a little research and you can look for an interesting statistic that you can then embroider upon. And for example, in in our books, uh, we talk about the cultural impact, which is one of the time horizons that businesses need to look at. Looking out you know, typically five years, 10 years into the future, what cultural shifts can we predict? And we can do that with generations. You know, we've got the Z-Gen who's coming into the workforce, and then we have Gen uh, Alpha, which are in their early teens. And so how is Gen Alpha going to impact a business in the future in terms of product and marketing and sales approach and customer service requirements? And for example, Gen Alpha... They're really planet sensitive, as illustrated by Greta Thunberg taking center stage and talking about things that somebody at her age probably has no business talking about, but she does, and she gets a lot of press because of it. And the um, Gen Alpha, for example, have had such influence upon product packaging that all of the manu- all of the major manufacturers, food manufacturers, I should say, all the major food manufacturers in the United States have switched over to cage-free eggs, just so that they can say these are made with cage-free eggs. You know, you pick up a bottle of mayonnaise now, and it says uses you know we use cage-free eggs, because the Gen Alpha won't let their parents buy things that they think are aren't aren't responsible. But you have to you know you have to look forward to that. Well, the research to discover that Nestle had already switched over to cage-free eggs really brought out a lot of interesting ideas that could then be developed for this conversation about how Gen Alpha is impacting our future. So there's an example of where you might find a hole, do some research, you find an insight, and then from there, that insight allows you to blossom and bring more, more richness to what you're writing. 
There's such good energy that comes out of hearing you talk about this. If I could make one more simple one more simple point about about generational issues, autism is skyrocketing, and how we create products and sell them and market them and support them is different when you're working with uh, somebody who's on the spectrum than other people. So you better be prepared for that. Now, there's an example of something that people have not been thinking about. We have a lot of folks coming into the workforce that are ADHD. Well, how do you manage them? They're different. They require different methodologies. We get better prepared, right? So the research behind that was really fascinating. That is absolutely forward-thinking. The Nimble Company is where they're going to find that one? Uh, the Nimble C-Suite. The Nimble C-Suite is the one where we talk about ah. um, strategic planning and the planning horizons, five planning horizons that you need to be thinking about. But even as authors, I think we need to think about how are we going to format our, our content so that those who are on the spectrum can consume it. They read books differently mm-hmm. than other people do. and They consume content differently than other people do. Are we, are we preparing our content to make sure that those who are on the spectrum can can benefit. Interesting things to think about. I know. There there is a lot to this. All right. There was another um, question I wanted to ask you before I let you go, and that is the concept of long-tail promotion. Can you talk about, you know, what do you do after the big launch and, and all of that? How does the ongoing promotion impact the life of your book? Well, there really is only one reason why we do a big launch, and that's so that we could achieve best-selling status someplace. Mm-hmm. And that would, you know, typically on Amazon, you can get best-selling status with a launch, and not just hot new seller, but actually get on the best-seller list. And we ended up getting to number one in a number of categories, beating out some really extraordinary books for a period of time, for three, four, five days because of that. And now, <clears throat> once you have that, you can use that in your marketing to say it is a best-selling book and uh, to provide social proof that others think that this book is, is really good. That's, that really is the reason for a, a big launch. And, of course, if you have a, a book that's published with a major publisher, they need to sell seven, five to 7,000 copies in a week to even be considered for a New York Times or Wall Street Journal bestseller list. As a, a small independent publisher, that probably isn't going to happen. So, but we, do, we can get it on Amazon. We can make the claim. They can never take that away from you. So that, that's just the launch to get that status. All right, check that box. Check. All right, now... <laughs> After you've written the book, the author's job is to sell the book. And it doesn't make any difference who is publishing it. The author's job is to still sell the book. I have three books published with Wiley that I co-authored with Jay Conrad Levinson and Orville Ray Wilson back in the 90s. And Wiley would publish anything we wrote because they know we would sell books. And we did. We sold books. Sold them from the front of the room. We sold them from the back of the room. We'd sell them to our lists. We'd create catalogs and send them out to our our, our massive uh, list of customers. And so we would sell books. And every time we published a new gorilla book, there would be an uplift in all the rest of the sales. And so Wiley said, anything you want to write, we don't care what it is. We'll be glad to publish it because they knew we would sell books. 
And that same thing translates to every other author. Okay, now you get to sell books. So how are we going to sell books? Well, you get on podcasts and you tell people about your book and about what value that they can have um, reading your book and implementing your book. Uh, and, and if you have a book that is suitable for certain groups, then you go to those associations and you sell them to the association bookstores and you try to get on the association stage so you can talk about your book. And uh, you write articles, excerpts of articles, excerpts from your book in the, in the association um, magazine. And you look for every way possible to get yourself in front of um, an audience that can, can benefit from your book. And you probably need to continue to do that for one, two, three years if your book's going to have the impact that you put into it. That means talking to people and calling people and getting placed in publications. And and uh, you know, my big effort coming up over the next three to six months is reaching out to corporations and looking to sell bulk sales. How many managers do you have? Well, we need to get a copy of the Nimble Company for every one of them. How many executives do you have? Well, we need a copy of the Nimble C-Suite and the Nimble Company in the hands of every one of those. And, of course, the goal is that as they read those books and as they consume those books, they say, we need to bring these guys in to help us. Um, so the, you need to put together a program for continuously beating the drum. That means you're, gonna, it's, you're going to announce news about your book every time you've got something interesting coming out. And right now, the Nibble C-Suite Audible is hung up. It's available from everybody else, but it's not, it's not available from Audible yet. And, when that finally breaks through their process, then you know I'll make noise about, hey, it's Audible's now available for at least a couple of weeks, with you know making videos and postings on social media and mailing my list saying, hey, good news, the Audible is now available. And uh, you can also do the same thing. Good news, you know we've we've broken past the uh, 2,000 uh, mark in how many units we've sold and. If you've been thinking about it, then why don't you do this? Or good news, we just got this favorable review. Or good news, we just got an award. And so you look for reasons to re-promote your book, and you're, you're going to do that every way you possibly can. Uh, good news, our book has been accepted as a textbook in this association's certification course. Wow. Right? You, you just look for all these reasons to keep doing so. And we're tempted to go off and write another book, but we end up with a bunch of orphans that way. Right. And it's up, it's up to us to create those long tail campaigns to keep the promotion going. And, you know, if you want to know how to do that, besides talking with you, you can always pick up a copy of, of uh, John Kremer's excellent book, A Thousand One Ways to Market Your Book. Mm-hmm. And while it hasn't been updated yeah. since 2006, because I think John's retired now, it doesn't really matter because you know, even if 20% of those things aren't possible anymore, you still have another 801 that you could use. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not doing even 10% of them anyway, so there's always room for improvement. So, always room yeah. for more. 
Yeah. But you know, just plan on talking right. about your book for a long, long time, and you can also start to talk about how people are using your book. You can mm-hmm. talk about um, case studies. You know, I've got a client right now that's gone through both books, and he's been teaching his team out of the books every Monday for the past eight weeks, and he's already noticed substantial improvements in their accountability and capacity to deliver. Well, we can have that conversation. And before buying my books, he was considering a $45,000 contract with a coaching company, a consulting company, to have him figure out how to do that. Well, he bought the books, and he figured out how to do it on his own, and he's so happy because he now has control of the process. So, I mean, you tell stories like that, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But then, you know, you make me think, okay, so then there needs to be some something that you can do to capture that kind of person to do the work with them or for them or some kind of ongoing program to help them integrate within the company. Um, Well, sure. Well, sure. Well, we have, we, we already have all the content we need to do whatever they want within the book. Oh, I know you do. I I don't doubt that at all. But what I'm saying is for those people who say, well, now that I have the book, then I can teach these other people. There may also be some who say, well, now that I have the book, my people need to be taught. So how could I yes. not have a big consulting contract, but have these little continuous or eight-week or 12-week thing that help my people to really integrate this? Um, right. I, I don't, yes. It just yes. makes me think about it. Yeah. A variety of different well, ways abs- to implement it. Absolutely. You turn them into bite-sized chunks that people can consume from video that go beyond what the book has. And mm-hmm. uh, we included a, an in-depth, at the, the, at the very end of the book, we, we included an, an in-depth list of things that we can do and testimonials from people that we have done it for. So... There is promotional content at the back of the book, but it's at the back of the book where, you know, people aren't going to be um, annoyed. They're not going to be annoyed right. if we keep, you know, by, by by talking about that. But it's, but you also you know, you talk about success stories. So that's a way that you can continue to market your book. And people go, oh, that's that sounds good. I need to get the book. Then one of the other, one of the other aspects that we haven't talked about is capturing buyers because if you sell through distribution, you know you have no idea who bought your book, and so therefore you have no way of sending them emails and getting them on your lists. And so, in those particular cases, you need to have multiple invitations throughout the book for them to get something for no additional charge, some additional resource material, and so that that you can capture them. And that's part of your long tail marketing too. Exactly. It's like. Um uh, like actually what I had to do for mine for the, my very first book, at least for the audio, was to actually have the spreadsheets on the website, right? So that they could yeah. access right. them because they couldn't That's before. It. So that gives you an opportunity to connect to the actual buyer because now they need to come to you for something that you're giving them free, but, you know, would come with the book if they had it. So. Um, so, yeah, there are opportunities for that, additional income streams that can come from that, but also additional ways for you to connect with your reader and see what it is yeah. that they are 
looking for and how they are applying what they're learning. So, yes. you know, that's all good. Indeed. That is all good. Really good. Really, really good. Um, well, I so much appreciate your being here with me today, Mark. This has been a wealth of knowledge and information and learning that authors are going to be able to take and run around with and start to apply in their own lives and hopefully think differently about their books. That, you know, it's not just the concept that it is just a cheap or an expensive business card, I think is being overused. When they can see how you take this nimble C-suite, nimble company, and actually create something meaningful with it, and see that even though you're not just relying on book sales, you can create something of tremendous value by having that book, that this is going to help a lot of people to look at their books differently. Thank you. And I'm so glad that. because that, that was the intention here. Write something worthy and then do something worthy with it. Ah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to share it for people to find that, right? So right. can you tell us where you would like our listeners to reach out to you after they hear this? Podcast? Yeah. Probably if you want a if you want a conversation with me, I'll be glad to have a conversation with anybody. No issues whatsoever. Best way to do that is connect with me through LinkedIn. Because that's the that's the, the most stable place for me to be. And you can just type into your browser, marksonlinkedin.com, M-A-R-K-S on LinkedIn.com, and they'll take you directly to my profile. And the reason why I do that is just in case something changes and I can still have control over that. But it also makes it very easy for you to get there. And then just say, you know, I heard you on the Write Something Worthy podcast, and I'll be delighted to accept your uh, your uh, connection request, and then we can set something up. Awesome. That is so wonderful. Mark's on LinkedIn.com. What a great concept, too, from a marketing perspective to make it easy to tap into you. So that's, that's, that's something idea. our listeners can pay attention to also. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, well, yeah, thank you same, again, Mark, same. for coming You're out. Welcome. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me on your show again, Tanya. It's always a delight to have a conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way about you. So, whew. so thanks again for a fabulous visit here at the Write Something Worthy podcast. I am so glad to have you, Mark S.A. Smith, and so glad to hear about your two nimble books, the Nimble C-Suite and the Nimble Company, and the fact that you can publish two books at one time. Who knew that it was possible? But you've shown us how. So thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Worthy Writer edition of the Write Something Worthy podcast. If you'd like to know more about today's guest or even to reach out to them, you can find all of their information in our show notes at writesomethingworthy.com.